is the kind of thing where it's like, well, ancient philosophy has some problems, but it, it did some things right. And in the attempt to innovate, we've lost some of the things that it did right. And we've gained some other wrong things. And the, the right organ, the right set of skis or whatever metaphor you want is going to be the right combination of both of those. And people like us are with podcasts like this, trying to pull things in the other direction a little bit. One of those things might be that orientation towards philosophy as a way of life. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. Before jumping into the conversation, I have a big announcement. We just opened up enrollment for a three-weeks Stoicism Applied course. It'll be running from October 23rd to November 10th. We've just had our first few students sign up. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Learn more at stoemeditation.com slash course. So do check that out if you are interested in becoming more stoic by taking a three-week intensive course with others deeply invested in that very same project. And here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And why do you study ancient philosophy, Michael? Yeah, or why even should you study ancient philosophy? That's what we're going to try to answer today, Caleb. Great question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I've come prepared for such accusations, which I think I think anybody who studies philosophy gets these questions, and you know, even if they're just kind of monetary ones of like, what are you going to do with that as a degree, or just like, why are you interested in it? But I also wanted to actually that's the kind of philosophy more general, and I also wanted to think about why study ancient philosophy. If you're going to study philosophy, why study ancient philosophy? And the reason I had this question or wanted to chat about this with you, I was talking to Gregory Sadler um, for a Stoa conversation. Gregory Sadler is a professor of philosophy. He was the um, editor of the blog at Modern Stoicism, member of the Modern Stoicism movement. And we were talking about criticisms of Stoicism. And he talked about a criticism by an 18th century philosopher, Hegel. I might be getting that wrong. But somebody we would consider in the past, but was certainly much more contemporary than the Stoics. And the, the nature of the argument was something like, well, look, what, what the Stoics were doing was something, what ancient philosophers in general were doing was something admirable, was something worth doing, but it's just an old version of that, right? If you look at maybe architecture or you look at really any craft, and the, the analogy we landed on was actually skiing, which I, I thought was a funny one. And he was, he was like, well, people ski in the 1800s, but... And like, that's cool and you can respect skiing and that's valuable and that was great for them. But if you were going to be a skier today, you wouldn't look at people in the 1800s for advice. You wouldn't wear the skis people in um, the 1800s wore. And in some ways, it's, it's quite a compelling argument because it, it takes ancient philosophy very seriously. It's this to say, look, what ancient philosophy is doing, this kind of craft, this kind of defining the nature of the world, understanding how to live, that's an important goal. But then it's also presenting this counter argument, which is to say that human knowledge, I suppose the argument is something like human knowledge linearly improves. And if it linearly or, or it, it has tended to improve, and if it's intended to improve, why would you ever go back in time if you're looking for advice about how to live? Why would you ever refer to people that lived 2,000 years ago if you're trying to build a craft? 
You wouldn't wear 200-year-old skis to go skiing. You wouldn't learn from 200-year-old books on how to ski. So why would you do that for your philosophy, for your craft of how to live? And I thought that was a really interesting question. I thought that was a compelling counterargument because a lot of the counterarguments I see are ones that go, well, that's stupid or that's silly or what's the point of that? And those, those seem to me obviously wrong because they don't take ancient philosophy seriously. This one seemed to me to be a counterargument that took it seriously and said, but we've also done better. We have better. We have contemporary philosophy or we have contemporary answers to these questions. Why look to the past? So that's the framing that I wanted to look at it by and, and wanted to say, well, what would be my counterarguments to that? What would be my counterarguments for the reason why, even if I want to look at, if I want to have a craft of living, if I want to live the good life, why should I look to ancient Greek philosophy to do that instead of something more contemporary? Yeah, I think that makes sense. That makes sense as an argument. If I could say in my own words, the main idea is that, look, if you're doing cutting edge science, to use another analogy, it's unlikely that you're going to go back and read through Newton, read through whoever else in order to you know, come up with some physics breakthrough. You know, if you're doing physics, you might not even need to read Einstein. Um, instead, you can just get up to speed with the current works. Um, and this seems like a similar kind of argument where, like, if you're trying to be good at some craft, uh, generally, you're not going to go back and look at the masters from thousands of years ago, but it's sufficient to, if mainly pick up from contemporaries and to the extent that you're learning from masters it's likely not as much as the amount of time or investment you might put in as modern stoics or as people interested in ancient philosophy broadly uh, yeah i think that's right and i think the science example is really compelling again we, we wouldn't as you said yeah you wouldn't have to read einstein or certainly wouldn't have to read newton Maybe you stand on the shoulder of giants and you go, well, thanks, giants, for being there. But now I'm going to stand on your shoulders. I'm not going to stand next to you. I'm going to, cont I'm going to continue forward. I'm not going to look back. And so why, if that's the objection, why do I think that's wrong? Or why do I think ancient philosophy is worth studying? And I've prepared a couple of these. You've prepared a couple of these. And we'll, 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 we'll go through and provide our reasons why we think Stoicism or ancient ancient Greek philosophy in general, maybe ancient ancient philosophy more broadly, stand up to this objection. So I'll jump into it if, if that's good. Sounds great. Yeah. So my my first one, I'm trying to stick to the skiing analogy. The science one works really well too, just to kind of frame what I'm thinking and to put it in this this silly metaphor. But I think it helps unify the arguments. The first one I would say is some sort of variation on this idea that people people aren't skiing today. So, you know, this idea of like, well, we have this, you know, there's the kind of meme of like, you know, well, we have, we have moral philosophy at home. And then you go back and moral philosophy at home is something different. So the idea is that ancient Greek philosophy is actually doing something different. And if you want to undertake that process, you have to go back in time to the time when people were doing that. And then you learn from them because they're, that is the most advanced this type of thinking got before people started doing something different. And the argument I would make for that is that when we look at ancient Greek philosophy, it's, it's holistic. It's a picture of the, in, in, an entire way to live that incorporates physics, 
It incorporates, you know, epistemology, psychology. It, it incorporates all these disciplines, you know, ethics, philosophy that are now separate or siloed in contemporary, and it tries to amalgamate them into a complete system. And there's a benefit to siloing things, but I also think contemporary philosophy, contemporary academics actually reward siloing. It rewards expertise in a small frame. And there's in contemporary thinking, there's less of attempt at this holistic picture. And then another thing about ancient Greek philosophy is that it is also focused on these questions of meaning and taking these questions of meaning very seriously. So when it looks at the holistic picture, it focuses on these questions of meaning. And it's also reason-based. It's evidence-based. It is argumentative and it stands behind arguments for its positions. So that's a that's a unique thing, I think, to find something that's holistic, something that is meaning-based, and something that is argumentative or reason instead of something that may be faith-based, for example. I, I, I'm not sure if that's being done today. I'm not sure if that's being done certainly not by as many smart people as it was being taken seriously and done back in in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe you see some of that in existentialist philosophy. Maybe some of that is being done in, in art in a different way, but there's, there, there is some sort of unique combination of these factors in ancient philosophy that I, I just don't see a contemporary equivalent of. So it's not like I'm shaming the contemporary equivalent. I feel like there's something that's being missed that was done back then. That's not being done today. So that's my, that's my first argument. Yeah, I think there's something to that. So so if you think one way to put this argument is that if you're in a field that's knowledge based and cumulative, you should expect after decades, centuries, whatever, to be able to look at your contemporaries, learn from the knowledge of the day and not need to look back and just basically take advantage of the fact that you're in a field that's pursuing knowledge. It's not like fashion or something that might be less knowledge-based, more about trends. And it, it's a cumulative field, so you can take advantage of the progress. So one way to attack that argument is just to say that when people are doing philosophy today, they're not doing that same kind of thing. They're not pursuing knowledge of yep. the kind that we care about. And I think to some extent that certainly is true. I mean, I think in the ancients, you have this picture of philosophy as a way of life. And the promise of philosophy is that if you wanted to put it bluntly, it promises salvation. It, you have an idea of what the best kind of life is and then some means to attain it. And a lot of academics, I think, are just not involved in that project, maybe just trying to pick off a piece of it or some indirect footnote from that project, which could be worthwhile, but it's not the same, same kind of thing. So to some extent, I think that is right. But it's, it is interesting, you made the claim that the number of people alive today doing philosophy of life is less than it was in the past. But that's probably not true, I would expect, just given that there are so many people in the world today. And you can go online and find lots of people doing philosophy of life, find communities offline. So I wonder if this counter argument is sufficient to knock down this, this skiing argument. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, so the other point would be something like this, Ben, would be something like, and this is that 
philosophy, which I'm, I guess I'm cautious against, but it could be another way to do this, would be to say philosophy is less, less like a knowledge-based cumulative craft, like ski, like science, you know, or skiing is kind of in the middle as this kind of expression, but also performance-based. And it's more like an art. And the art, as you said, like fashion is something that has trends and it's something that has kind of motifs or themes or phases, you know, mm-hmm. it's not clear to me. I don't know a lot of music. It's not clear to me that contemporary music is better than, you know, what Bach or Beethoven were doing. And so if you look at, if you then say, well, it's just not analogous to scheme because it's more like an art, in which case you might say, well, contemporary painters are worse than Renaissance painters. Contemporary sculptors are missing something that ancient sculptors had. And that analogy becomes stronger. I'm hesitant to do that because I would like my philosophy to be maybe a bit of science and not just all art. But what do you think about that argument? Well, I think there's the issue, is it knowledge-based? Where are you attempting to come to true beliefs, you know, things that accurately describe the world, which I think you are doing in philosophy when it's done well and in science when it's done well, uh, but perhaps not the same kind of thing you're doing when it comes to fashion or say humor or something like that. But although humor is an interesting case. So there's that. And I, I, I don't want to give that up, but I think that's different from whether a field's cumulative or progressive, because even in science, or if you take skills, like we have just as a civilization forgotten how to do things that hmm. we once were able to do. And you, you can think of thought experiments about, imagine we lost all our technology, would we be able to fare better in our environment than some primitive, illiterate human from thousands of years ago? Maybe not. There's an interesting book on this by a fellow named Joseph Henrik called The Secrets of Our Success. And he essentially, he has a nice experiment, which is called Lost European Explorers. And it involves Europeans who are at the time in the you know, whether it's the 18th, 19th uh, century, the most technologically, scientifically advanced civilization getting lost somewhere in Australia or the Americas and noticing that these people fared much worse than the people who grew up in those areas, obviously, and also likely fared much worse than many of their ancestors would have just because they've learned many new skills and forgotten others. So that's maybe a long-winded way of saying that we can have knowledge-based fields, but that doesn't mean that we don't forget things. That doesn't guarantee that progress is linear. And perhaps there are some features of philosophy that make it more likely that we'd forget things we past humans have learned in the past. Perhaps there's some things about philosophy that would that makes it harder for it to be linear. I think that's a, that's an interesting line of thought. Yeah, cool. I like that. I like this idea of you can think of it as a craft that maybe we've forgotten how to do well, or so maybe maybe the same kind of thing. Maybe there's you know plenty of people today that are good fishers just because like just know how to fish and know how to do agriculture, for example, because there's just so many people on the earth. But as a whole, culturally, we can have certain things that become less emphasized or 
something that the average person is kind of worse at doing or, mm-hmm. or not able to think about. And, you know, I don't want to speak for the averages in ancient Greece and ancient Rome because, you know, I don't know how much stoicism the average person will be doing. But certainly, certainly as a whole, we're worse at these crafts than the people we're reading about, right? Than the, than the Epictetuses and the Marcus Aureliuses that, that we're reading from, the average person today. And they have something to learn in that respect. The moving on to the next one, another argument I had is that, you know, one reason that we might study ancient philosophy is just this view that we, we might even agree that it's dated, but then still think we have something to learn from it. So this idea of like, look, well, if I'm a skier today, I might have something to learn from an ancient ski, an old skier, not ancient, but, you know, 100 years ago, there might be something I have to learn from watching an athlete from a period before mine, even if we're better today. And I've ca- called this, a philosophy professor of mine called this, you know, the kind of mining for diamonds argument. The idea is like, there's going to be a lot of dirt, but every once in a while when you, you're going to find a diamond and then it's okay digging through a lot of dirt to find a diamond, you know? So if you read, you know, if you, if you read something by the Stoics and you're like, well, you know, clearly this is, clearly this is not how, I think about this a lot when I think of, you know, maybe if you read some ancient science, for example, you're like, well, these people are clearly misunderstanding some things that we get now maybe about physical biology in particular, these kind of particular things. But every once in a while, there's kind of an approach or an insight or some sort of perspective that's worthwhile. One of those diamonds, I want to say, that I think ancient philosophy provides, even if it's wrong, and even if you're the kind of person who's like, I'm just going to read contemporary psychology of happiness, or I'm just going to do like study contemporary ethics, I don't need anything for this. Even if there's that, a diamond that I think ancient philosophy provides is that they often use stories or metaphors or these kind of analogies that, that create mental models. Bear with me, but this is, this is I think, the diamond in a thought that I just had uh, a couple of weeks ago. But I, in my job now, we, I do a lot of design thinking. Design thinking is about creating, you know, creating objects or services, services for people. And when you're creating a, a service or you know, an, an app or a piece of technology, you think about a mental model that that person's going to interact with that object with. And what a mental model is, is it's how the user thinks about what they're interacting with. So it doesn't actually matter if the mental model is accurate. So I, I, I don't know, let's say I'm on my iPhone and I am using my finger to scroll through, you know, the mental model that it's providing me is that the phone is kind of like a book or a page, right? And I'm scrolling from one page to another as I scroll through. And I'm able to navigate that really easily and successfully because I understand how pages work. It's a helpful mental model. It doesn't matter the actual bits and bytes or the electricity of how that, oh, you know, the, the information architecture of how that's, that is happening. What matters is that I have a mental model of how my phone works. I scroll through my phone because I want to achieve something and that thing is achieved. So there's kind of a, there's there's the, there's me as the user, there's the end state, and then there's this black box in the middle, which is mediated by how I think about it. And it doesn't really matter if the mental model is accurate to that middle. What matters is that it's an effective way of going from what I want to get to getting it. And I think about that ancient philosophy provides these really beautiful mental models for the philosophy of mind, or how, how we think about action, how we think about consciousness. I think of even like stoicism, this idea of, you know, impression, assent, impulse. So whether or not whether or not complex contemporary neuroscience agrees with this model or not, it is a model that tends to make that that helps me 
conceptualize the way I interact with the world and helps me interact with that world better. I think about Plato's idea of the soul as being divided into parts. One is reason, one is this like spirited part, mm -hmm. and one is this kind of appetite, this, this, this desire part, and how reason has to control the spirit and the appetite. And again, that's just, the, that's just a way to kind of con con conceptualize or frame my own experience when I'm feeling split between two paths, when I'm feeling really conflicted about something. It's a mental model to, to put my own conscious experience in. And that is, I think those are beautiful, creative things that we want to preserve and helpful creative tools. They're really, they're, they're diamonds that, that are valuable regardless of if they're accurate at a scientific level. So there, there was a lot to that. But yeah, have, what do you think, Hill? Oh, I think some, something like that's definitely right. I mean, another way to say this, that philosophy is harder to make sustained progress in than some scientific field. So if you're a scientist, having phlogiston as a mental model is probably not helpful. But if you're coming to the project of how does one live, understanding a variety of different approaches to that question, thinking through how people debated that in the past and taking advantage of traditions that have sort of uh, internalized those debates is something that is going to be more useful. I think in, in part that just suggests it's more useful because it's harder to make those you know, certified advances than in some other mm -hmm. fields. You know, yeah, you, so what you mean is like in, in science, there could be this giant paradigm shift and then the previous paradigm doesn't yield any benefit. Well, you're not really getting that paradigm shift in flaw. Is that, that's what you mean? I think so. I mean, the question, I suppose, you know, if you wanted to push this argument, the obvious counter argument is, well, why don't more skiers mine for diamonds? Why don't more scientists mine for diamonds? And I think one answer for that is just that those fields, it's easier to judge when you've made progress. And in some sense, it might be easier to actually make uh, progress. Yeah. This idea that, I mean, why is, I never thought of that, but that's a great point. This idea of why is philosophy the kind of thing that you would mine for diamonds in where you don't have philosophy, you don't have scientists going over and reading old science, you know, ancient scientists hoping, wow, I just, I'm, I'm just looking for that little spark of inspiration I need mm -hmm. to make this breakthrough in quantum mechanics. Although yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe they could be doing that a little bit more than they are. Yeah, I think you see, don't. yeah, I think you see that you do see it in sciences and you see it in sciences that are more difficult. So I think, or I shouldn't say more difficult. That's not exactly what I mean. It, maybe it's something like harder to get real world feedback. So more theoretical sciences, like many people doing building evolutionary models, my sense is that a non-trivial amount of them do in fact read Darwin. Cool. Okay. And part of that is just because maybe they're not like the physicists who can run a test and quickly determine whether the hypothesis is correct and that there is some value in thinking about how Darwin thought about natural selection. And, you know, he still weighs in on contemporary debates in the same sense that many ancient philosophers are going to weigh in contemporary debates about how best to live. Yeah, great. Interesting. Yeah. So there's that real, I feel like that there's that real, that kind of type delineation that we keep hitting up against, which is like, there is this difference. And one of those differences you made is that kind of real, real world correspondence. 
like you know, like a scientist is just saying, not just saying, but something a scientist might do is, I wonder what happens when I combine this drug with this other drug, or I do it in this kind of use case. And that's not the thing where you need to go back and think about the philosophy of science. It's something where you need to just go and run the physical experiment out in the world. Mm -hmm. And so with these kind of more theoretical pursuits, there's, there is, it is harder for something to be definitively useless or definitively for, for even an old perspective to be definitively kind of version one and we have version three now. So we don't need version one. The last argument I made. So first argument is, you know, well, we should do this because we should study ancient philosophy because people aren't really doing that kind of thing anymore. Or we have this great resource. Another is, look, even if, even if it's wrong, there is some value here that can be found. And the third thing that I, the third argument I had is that, you know, if we think about the skiing metaphor, you know, when, when you grow up wanting to be an athlete, I know in my own, maybe, you know, maybe growing up in Canada, maybe hockey players don't copy Wayne Gretzky when they get good. They might still, that might not be enough of a jump, but they certainly know who Wayne Gretzky is when they're kids. They certainly watch old people, boxers, certainly know who Muhammad Ali is and things like this. And there's this kind of inspirational reason, this, the, what I would call the protreptic argument. And protreptic is, was the ancient Greek term for turning somebody towards somebody, something, inspiring them to take up philosophy. And so there's this idea that if we think of the project of living well, that project of philosophy as a way of life, well, maybe I could learn from, more from contemporary people. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. But even if you could, there is this value of being inspired by, you know, whether it was the innovation that the, the ancient ancient philosophers made coming up with these the, some of these positions just that nobody, we have no evidence that anybody had before, just this pure kind of inspiration, this creative act that was occurring, whether it's the kind of biographical features that excite people of, you know, Marcus Aurelius. A lot of people love Marcus Aurelius because of his his pivotal role in, in the Roman Empire, uh, learning about the fact that Epictetus was a slave or something like this, this kind of inspirational biographical aspect, or if it's just the, the way that it's written. You know, I remember having this discussion with Massimo Pigliucci, who's saying, you know, the reason people don't read Aristotle is just because he wrote like a textbook, right? People read the Stoics because these are, they're written in aphorisms or you know, Seneca is just an amazing, amazing writer, for example. And so when you read it, even if it's, even if it's a little bit worse, if it's presented or even if it's a little bit, even if it's dated, right, even if it's old, and even if this contemporary stuff was better, even presuming that's right, there could still be this inspirational aspect to really well-written philosophy or really interesting historical context. And if that inspires you to take up the project, how to live well, that inspires you to go then and read contemporary philosophers, well, then that's a great reason to study ancient philosophy, even if it's wrong, and even if there's no diamonds to find, if it can inspire you to take up the craft of living well, to live the examined life, well, then there's a reason right there regardless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the key reasons uh, I return to ancient philosophy is that I do find it protractic. It has that, that motivating force and has had that force for people throughout uh, time. You um, could say protreptic. You could also just say 
I, I say patreptic, but you know, normal people wouldn't, <laughs> non, non-ancient Greek philosophy nerds would be like, what are you talking about? But it just, it just pumps you up. That's just what I mean. It's just like, you just, you just feel inspired and that's okay. Like that's, that's like a legitimate reason to like something because it inspires you, right? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Uh, there's a nice passage from Machiavelli, which I, which touches on this, which I'll, I'll just read now. When evening comes, I go back home and go to my study. On the threshold, I take off my work clothes covered in mud and filth and put on the clothes an ambassador would wear. Decently dressed, I enter the ancient courts of rulers who have long since died. There I am warmly welcomed and I feed on the only food I find nourishing and was born to savor. I am not ashamed to talk to them and to ask them to explain their actions. And they, out of kindness, answer me. For hours go by without my feeling any anxiety. I forget every worry. I am no longer afraid of poverty or frightened of death. I live entirely through them. And I love that passage because it, I, I love that passage just because it captures almost a kind of communion you can have with these old people, these old sages, examples of the past, their thought, interact with them and, um, adds i think both the fact that not only were they great artists great examples but there's a real sense in which you can commune with them and that experience is intrinsically worthwhile yeah i think there's kind of a third i mean first of all it's a beautiful passage i haven't heard that before i, I love that i think anybody who's studied ancient philosophy or maybe history more generally will relate to the joy of that this idea of you know you come home and i get to have conversation with uh really smart people. I think there's this third point or this fourth point emerging here, which I'm kind of, I realized I didn't write down, which is this idea that sometimes it's just fun. Like sometimes it's just its own kind of joy, right? Like I, I framed the conversation as, well, if you want to live great, why look to ancient people to do that, right? If you want to be a great skier, why would you look to the past, not to the future? And there's this other point here, which I guess you, in, in that, I tried to make some arguments of why it can be effective to live well, you know, whether that's you find a diamond in the rough there, uh, whether it is, the, the, it is, you know, better than you might expect, even though, though it's old, or that it can inspire you to, to put work towards this. But there's just this fourth position of just like, well, what if you just want to enjoy yourself? You know, what if you just want to partake in, in something that is in a way a really like beautiful kind of historical accident it's not an accident because it was done on purpose people preserve these works but we're really lucky we have them right and in some cases we we have some cases we don't have them right we don't we don't have the writings of a lot of people so the people that we do have is kind of like a, again a, a historical luxury and there's a kind of joy i mean you put that as communion i really like that a sense of community through time right a sense of community through time with other people who are exploring these really meaningful questions of how to live that that's kind of cool yeah absolutely absolutely there's yeah i guess there's just a line you know i study ancient philosophy just because i love it that's all and you don't need to say say much else yeah it's just like, okay conversation conversation over <laughs> and i think i think you actually do see that just to go back to the skis analogy and a lot of performers they will look to the ancient masters top people from their field, often they have a rich knowledge of the history of their field. 
maybe it doesn't even influence their play that much. It's just that they love whatever it is. Um, yeah. And there's, there's certainly something to that. Yeah, great. And then, so what about you, Caleb? Any, any arguments for why to study ancient philosophy that we haven't hit on? Well, uh, you know, as, we, as we're talking, I feel like a, there's sort of a picture that's emerging for me, which is that ancient philosophy is useful to study because although the study of a philosophy of life is knowledge-based, it is difficult to identify progress and difficult to render that progress cumulative over time. So I suppose, you know, one way to always argue against arguments from analogy is to point out differences. So I think in skiing, it's relatively easy to identify, at least compared with philosophy, easy to identify what makes a skier good, whether they are good at all. But perhaps that's just not so with philosophies of life. Moreover, when it comes to studying uh, philosophy, there are so many other factors that can derail our individual lives, derail institutions, schools of philosophy from considerations about politics, religion, personal advancement, that's each of those, you know, if we're thinking fundamentally about the project of being better people are going to both make pushing up that linear line, if you will, difficult, but also make it much more likely that there are going to be periods where the opposite of progress occurs, which I do think you see in, hmm. in philosophy to some extent. So when we go back to the many ancient works, well, you know, one of the things that you and I think is miss, missing from a lot of academic philosophy is that focus on, say, philosophy of life. And so that's, I think that's a, one picture that's sort of coming uh, more into focus as we, ha as we have this conversation. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's well put. I think that's compelling. Yeah, because you want to hold on to it being knowledge-based, right? We don't want to fall into some sort of relativism, some sort of like pure art of like, well... I prefer this one to this other one, you know, I, stoicism, I just, I just kind of like it. And that's why I live my life like that. Um, or, you know, well, if you're a utilitarian, you just kind of like that. It floats your boat. That's cool too. We want to reject this. There, there needs to be wrong answers. There should be, you know, if, if, if there's a plurality of right answers, maybe, maybe not, but there needs to be some, there needs to be wrong answers. There needs to be mistakes, false starts, bad moves here. But then we also, if it is knowledge-based, why is it the kind of thing that we can, we can, why is it not the kind of thing that is like science where we just say, well, you don't need to read anything that wasn't, hasn't come out since the nineties, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think you've, you've provided some compelling picture. We're able to preserve, I think this is what I was trying to get at. We're able to preserve the knowledge-based nature of it because we, we want to be committed to that. That's, that's one of the appeals to it. It also matters when you're living your life based on something but then also justify why something that's knowledge-based could be valuable, could have such value for something originating 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think, we've done, I think you've, you've done a decent job of making an argument there. All right, decent. I'll take it. Another, I don't want to go too strong. Yeah, yeah. 
Another analogy that comes to mind is there's a book by a, a philosopher named Matthew Crawford called Living Outside of Your Head. That, that sounds wrong. I should. It's very close to living outside of your head. The world outside your head. That's what it's called. Called the world outside of your head. And uh, I didn't need to look that up. It just came to me. That, he, he has a chapter, although it took a while. He has a chapter in that book on the art of creating organs, the musical instrument. And that's an interesting case here because when people create organs, there they, are standards around what makes a good or bad organ that might be clear to experts, but not the typical person. Much of the knowledge is tacit. It's communicated through you know, organ makers, their apprentices, there's apprentices, apprentices, and so on. And because it's such a long-term artistic endeavor, you know, you're making an organ to last for hundreds of years. It's the kind of thing that doesn't progress in a linear fashion. So, you know, he talks to organ makers who do study past masters who argue persuasively that some more recent example of organs tried to innovate and made mistakes that the past masters wouldn't have by using the wrong materials and so on. But also the fact that this is a progressive field, although they look at the past examples of successful organs, they also need to renovate those organs. They also need to, they also can improve their craft. So I think that's an interesting example just because it does it's sort of a ver it's very practical, hands-on craft that nonetheless ha is an, forces its practitioners to look into the past to learn from the tradition while also pushing that tradition forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean and, and to pull that back into philosophy, maybe this would be something like all, this, all the kind of things I've been providing have been pretty binary, right? Either like Ancient philosophy is the best thing ever, and nobody's been doing it since then. Or ancient philosophy is dirt, but if you look in it, you can find some diamonds. These kind of extremes, and maybe it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, ancient philosophy has some problems that, but it it did some kind of things right, and in the attempt to innovate, we've lost some of the things that it did right, and we've gained some of the that gained some other wrong things, and the the right organ, the right set of skis or whatever metaphor you want is going to be the right combination of both of those. And people like us are kind of with podcasts like this, trying to pull things in the other direction a little bit. One of those things might be that orientation towards philosophy as a way of life. One of those things might be, I think, a familiarity or comfortableness with using um, arts. We haven't lost that in all philosophy, but in but in certainly in like analytic Western philosophy and something maybe we've gained in contemporary philosophy is like, I don't know, something like building, building on the knowledge of others explicitly. So it becomes more of a project that people can build from. We see, we see some of that in ancient philosophy, but there was just obviously not this way of writing. There's this intense focus on accuracy by breaking into silos, there is kind of a hyper-specialization that allows more nuance than somebody who is expected to understand all of philosophy at the same time. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some benefits to contemporary philosophy. But I really thought that, I really think that Oregon example is is right. What makes it right is this kind of reverence for the certain things that the the old masters, if you will, got got right, while also recognizing that there's progression and mm -hmm. but and recognizing that 
some of they they did get some things wrong instead of just being deferential to oh well it can't ever get any better than you know these these 1700 organs which would seem to just be wrong right right so yeah i think you can recognize that there's value significant value in returning to these ancient orcs while also taking advantage of the best aspects of philosophy today or even more broadly like you know modern culture today since uh that is going to positively and negatively influence i think how we construct our life philosophies just as ancient culture did the same to you know the past past examples yeah cool excellent cool anything else no that's it for me i mean even just in this 45 minutes, I feel more I feel more inspired and secure in the value of ancient philosophy than I did before. So I hope, hope those listening feel the same way because it worked for me. I go, oh, maybe I'm not wasting my time. This makes sense. There, there is something, there is something valuable here, even if even if it's old. I always knew that, but again, based on that ancient philosophy value of being like, well, it has to be argument based. It has to you have to kind of be able to reason to it. That's a paradigm of ancient philosophy that I really respect. And I feel like we got here. Uh, we, we, we got there and, and did a lot of more shaping of the kind of thing ancient philosophy is or the kind of thing philosophy is as a craft, as a kind of a knowledge-based, but maybe not you know, externally validated craft that, that makes it a, a bit messier than some of the hard sciences. I thought that was, that was a fun discussion, Kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and as always, if you want to help us out, feel free to share these conversations with a friend or send us a message. You know, we're just at stoa at stoameditation.com. We got a, a very nice and thoughtful email this morning and we read all of those. So if you have any additional thoughts on this topic, future guests, future discussion topics, as always, send us a note. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Great. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search STOA in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.